Good morning. How are we doing? Are we awake? Good. Do you have your thinking caps on? Yeah. Uh, I'm really excited to share this message with you this morning and some of the content of it. I've really, um, I told Janny last night, I may have, may have overbaked my brain for this one. Uh, so I just, it's just something I'm passionate about and I'm excited about, you know, looking at church history, looking at um, the canon of the scripture. And particularly this week, we're going to be talking about the Old Testament. Why is the Old Testament scriptures, why are they, the, why, why are they in the Bible? How did the Bible come to be? Why do we really think it's the Word of God? Why do we treat it so authoritatively? All those kind of things. And for, for many, many years, thousands of years actually, the scriptures have been challenged over and over and over repeatedly by secular society as whether or not they're true, whether or not they're usable, whether or not they're accurate. And over and over and over throughout history, uh, they've, been, uh, it's been, they've been unable to disprove the scriptures in any way. And in fact, there's so much evidence that points to the accuracy of the scripture. If we use those same standards for most other historical works we have, they would not hold up. I think there's a lot to be discussed, and, and I won't even, I just, there's just so much there, I, I won't be able to get into all of it, and uh, I know that some of you are afraid that you might fall asleep, because this might be boring, great history, it'll be just like high school history, uh, where I slept through most of the classes and got by with like a D minus. Well, I'm hoping to make it a little more relevant and interesting uh, for you, uh, because I think it matters. It does matter. It matters. So let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord, asking God for the power of your Spirit to be at work in our hearts and minds today. Father, as we look at your Scriptures, your Word that you've given to us, Lord, you've been so caring and kind and loving that you would give us instruction, that you would lead us into a relationship with you, that you would help us understand and draw close to you in it. And Father, I pray that you'd help me as well today to articulate Lord, these different concepts today. and Lord, I just pray that the, the power of your words themselves would really be what carries the day. Lord, not all of our forensic study, which is helpful, and all the history and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. But Lord, we, we know that your word is powerful. It's alive. It's active. It goes out and it does something in our hearts like no other word can. So, Father, I pray you'd be at work in us in power today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, I started out uh, talking about the Word of God in a general sense. We talked about the Word of God, the decrees of God, things like, let there be light, and there was light. God decreed something from heaven, and it was. We talked about words of personal address, where God spoke to mankind, and mankind was very clear that it was God. They knew it was God that was speaking to them, kind of like that thundering voice from heaven kind of thing, where man knew that God was speaking to him. We, have, we had words through the lips of men. God raised up the prophets. He did so with Moses, and then he promised that he would do so in the ensuing generations. We looked at the passages of Scripture on that, which is a very important fundamental thing to put into place. The idea that God would continue to raise up the prophets, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. We talked about um, the Word of God being Jesus Himself. We see several passages. Uh, we, you know, Jesus really is the fulfillment of, of the Scripture. He's the greatest revelation of all revelations, is Jesus Christ Himself. 
Uh, I feel like I'm missing one. Words, uh, words of decree, words of personal address, words through the lips of humans, and the written word, of course, what we're talking about now for the next few months. Uh, that God commanded that he actually started that process by writing himself the very first written words of Scripture in the Ten Commandments. It says it was written with the hand of God. Of course, if you know the story, uh, Moses came down the mountain and smashed those tablets in anger at the Israelites who had made a uh, golden calf and were worshiping it. Moses was barely gone a little while, and they had deviated from God. And uh, then there's others that says that Moses... Later, he spent 40 days and nights without drinking or eating, which was a miracle. Uh, I think that's just a testimony to what the presence of God did for Moses. He went into the presence of God for 40 days and nights, and he wrote what God instructed him to write, is what the Scripture accounts for that. And so it begins there, where we start to see this written record begin to take place. So we looked at those things last week. Here is the question. Do we have the right books in the Bible? Do we have the right writings there? Are things missing that should have been there? Or have things been added that should not be there? This is a question that's been going on for the ages, and I will address it from our point of view uh, today. I may not get through all this material today, Uh, There's so much of it. I really want to spend some time talking about what's called the Apocrypha, and I may start to break into that today, but I may have to finish that up next week. So when people say the canon of the Scripture, what are they talking about? Well, the word canon really is, it's the list of books that belong in the Bible. Okay, you have to realize that all throughout history, there was not this nice bound book of pages with addresses and stuff in it that you have today. They uh, didn't get their names stamped in them like we do today, right? It started out, they were just writings, individual scrolls. Can you imagine if the whole Bible were on one scroll? You'd have to haul it around with a forklift. It'd be very, very inconvenient, but they, they kept things in scrolls. And uh, I'll use that analogy maybe a little bit to describe something here in a bit. But canon really comes from the root word read. And they used a read as a measuring standard. It was the way they measured things. And then eventually came to just mean standard, the canon. So you could use words like canon with the Star Wars series. What's the canon of the Star Wars? Well, to me, it's the the three that came out in the late 70s and early 80s, right? It's, it's the, amen. That, I need more of that. Thank you. You guys, I, you guys can be as loud as you want. I think that's good, and I think it's healthy. So there's those kind of things, you know, what is the, what is the standard-bearing thing? And that's where we get the word canon. What are the standard-bearing writings that are considered the actual word of God that he authorized to be included for all time to instruct his people? That's where the word canon comes from. And we cannot underestimate the importance of this issue. It is absolutely important why is it so important? Because the words of the Scripture are, are the words that enrich and lead our spiritual lives. They're the words by which we enrich our spiritual lives. They're the words by which we choose to live. 
They bear the standards of what the character of God is. And if we want to be drawing closer to God and be in alignment with him rather than misalignment, which is really the ultimate definition of sin, I think, we want to be in alignment with God. So how do we do that? We have to know what God has actually said and what God has actually authorized to be his word all throughout time. Moses said this in Deuteronomy 32, verse 47, For it is no empty word for you, he's speaking of what he has written and presented to them up until this point, but your very life. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word, you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Moses put serious emphasis on the idea of the life that was in the word that God had given them. Romans, we see that so faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. What, what happens if, if we don't believe the authority of the scripture? What happens if we don't really think those, they can be trusted? What happens? We, have, we actually have nothing to have faith in because we don't know. We might know that the Bible says God loves us, but if we don't trust that the Scripture is accurate, we have nothing to put our faith in. But when we hear those words and believe that they are true, then faith comes alive in us. We have something to anchor our spiritual lives in. We believe it. But if we don't believe it, we don't have anything to anchor our faith in. This is the value of the Word of God. The faith comes by hearing. Hearing what? The words of God. When we hear them, it's like, that is truth. I can anchor a belief against all circumstances or every, all experiences or everything around me. I can, I can anchor myself in this reality of faith because the word of God is true. We cannot underestimate the value of really being sure that we believe that what we have is accurate and true today. If not, we don't have anything to build our faith upon. I had started to use the analogy, and I think about things a lot in this way, but there are really basic, if you could imagine a building block right here in front of me, there are things that we put into place as foundational, fundamental building blocks of our faith. And then we begin to build upon the tops of those truths. It's just like any scientific theory or mathematical theory or things like that. We start out with a theory, and if it's proven true, then over time we can build, and it shows itself true. Can you imagine if we all of a sudden discovered that Pythagorean's theorem was wrong? All these years I've been using A squared plus B squared equals C squared and construction and fabrication and things like that. And all of a sudden I find an exception to that. It changes everything that's been built upon from that. But of course time has shown year in and year out through the ages that that theorem is accurate. It works. And so the same is true with our faith. We need to be sure that those fundamental building blocks are in place because we're building a tower. And if some of these blocks are inaccurate, that tower is going to lean or crumble. And if we pull one of those fundamental blocks out, all of our other beliefs that are derived from that fundamental belief are no longer believable. They've lost their value. Therefore, we have to be reassured that the foundation that we're building upon is actually true or we have nothing. The only reason you know who Jesus Christ is is because he's preserved his word for 2,000 years. The likelihood of you having an oral tradition for 2,000 years is highly unlikely. And you've played the telephone game at school, right, where you start with one thing and you whisper it in one kid's ear and it goes around, and what is it by the time it gets to the end? It's inaccurate. I think God was wise when he wrote the Scripture, and he began to instruct Moses, write this down, write this down, 
Write this down over and over throughout the Scripture. And then as he began to raise up the prophets, generation in and generation out, he would instruct them, write this down, write this down. Keep the record. Put it by the Ark of the Covenant. It will be a witness against you. It's a witness. Like when you go to court and you, you have a witness's testimony up there, it's like they are testifying to the truth of whatever they saw or whatever the situation is. And you might be acquitted and you might be condemned based on whatever that witness is testifying in court. Well, the Word of God is the same way. We have a reliable witness that these things are true. That's what the purpose of the written Word of God is. That's why God instructed Moses. Write it down. Set it up next to the ark. It would be a witness for the people in the presence of God. It is no empty word. It is your very life. To add or subtract from the God's word would be to prevent his people from obeying him fully. Okay? Yeah, I mean, we, I, I think God is just, and, and, you know, people always ask the question, what about people who have never heard? I, listen, I'm just going to leave that in God's hand, okay? But what we have is the privilege of all of these things in a collection of writings to know and draw near to God. If we add to those words, we're adding to the requirements of people that God didn't put on them. They cannot obey God fully when you've put additional commands upon them. Or if we're to take away from the Scripture, we're going to take away from people's ability to fully obey God. We, we want to fully obey God. Now, we move into this position where we start to go, can we be perfect? Is perfection something we can attain? No, we, absolutely not. We don't want to get legalistic about it. But if I truly love God, I'm going to be on a constant journey towards Him and a constant journey of growing in my relationship with Him and, and wanting to understand and fully obey more and more and more as I live my life. Because, why? Because we see that right in the beginning when God starts giving these commandments. If you obey me, there's going to be blessing. If you disobey me, there will be cursing. This very black and white way he starts out of showing us. And we know today when we align ourselves with God, yeah, good things do happen to bad people, but we want to operate in the blessing of God in our lifetime. So we bring ourselves in alignment with him. Or we want our, want to be, uh, our eternal life to be blessed. So we are, keep ourselves in alignment with God. And we get Out of alignment, we're putting ourselves under the control and power of other things. And we don't want to do that. We want to be under the control and the power and the leadership of God himself. That's why we need his word. To add or subtract from God's word would be to prevent his people from obeying him fully. And of course, Moses was instructed in this way. You shall not take away from it. You shall not add to it. You shall not add to the word I commanded you, nor take from it, that you may keep my commandments commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. Okay, so why do we believe that the collection of writings that we have is actually authoritative? And I'll start with the Old Testament. First of all, the Bible itself testifies to the development of the canon. The writings themselves talk about how they came together and why they are authoritative. Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. I mentioned this stuff a little bit. But the first one is that God... Uh, wrote himself wrote those commandments. And he gave them to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Exodus 31, 18. The, Exodus 32, 16. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. So it's important to understand right here, first and foremost, that we have a collection of words that are the words of God. We collected them in a written form that we could hang on to them and know them and that they would be accurate from the time they were written 
And of course, this is where we get the saying, written in stone, that it wouldn't fade away or go away. It's, it's chiseled in there. It can't be erased or modified. And and that collection began to grow. And so we need to understand, how did that collection begin to grow? What was going on at the time? It grew with Moses' writings. In Exodus 24, 4, Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Exodus 34, 27, And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel, in accordance with the words. So it gets written down as that witness of that relationship and what God was establishing between God and God. And man, there are other books that Moses wrote. The scripture and the Jews attest the idea that Moses wrote Genesis. That's been challenged over and over and over and is, again today, being challenged. Did Moses actually write it? Because of the poetic style, because of the way that it's written. It couldn't possibly have been Moses. And yet, the Bible and and the Jews themselves throughout the ages testified that, that Genesis came from Moses. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, first five books of the Bible, all at the hand of Moses. And we see in some of those other books that God was commanding Moses to write, write them down. At the Lord's command, uh, Moses recorded the stages of their journey, Numbers 33, Deuteronomy 31. So that very day, Moses wrote down this song and taught it to the Israelites. Didn't know Moses could write music, did you? He did, he wrote down a song. When Moses had finished writing in a book the words of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God so that it may remain there as a witness against you. Right there in the presence of God. That original copy of that word. Now we know that it was distributed amongst Israel. Amongst the, Le- the Levites, the priests, and as Israel grew, they took copies of this into the different places, but apparently the original ones sat there in the presence of God. The ark, you know, Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Those of you who don't know what the biblical ark is, that's what it's talking about. And that was where, uh, in, in the God's design of the temple and the ark, which actually the scripture says is a reflection of what is actually in heaven, between the cherubim on the ark on the top, the angels, was the presence of God. And it sat in the holy of holies of the temple. And in that same place was that written word. That's how important they held the words of God. They were the way, they were the testimony by which their relationship with God was defined. God's word. All five of those books. Well, it continued to grow from there, though. Joshua began to write. Right at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, all the way through the book of Joshua, Uh, Moses dies at the end, and Joshua takes over. He becomes the successor to Moses. And so what does he do? Just like Moses promised, I will raise from among them a brother, someone who will speak on God's behalf, the prophets. And we see this succession of prophets all the way up to a very specific point in time in history. These were the spokespeople of God. And when they, they, they did lots of different things, but some of the things that they wrote were then considered through time the authoritative words of God. Joshua began to add, Joshua chapter 24, verse 26, Joshua wrote these words. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was the sanctuary of the Lord. He added covenant documents. He added to this as God had instructed him. 
Joshua spent, spent a lot of time in the presence of God while Moses was still in charge. It's an interesting thing about him. Joshua was one of the only two spies. Joshua and Caleb were two of the spies that went into Israel and spied it out, and they were the only two that had faith. The rest of them chickened out, and so God made the Israelites wander for 40 years in the desert. Joshua ultimately became the leader of the people. Many, many examples. If you were to go through the Old Testament and look at all the times they wrote, 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 and were told to write, you begin to see how significant it was when God instructed them to write. I'm reminded of uh, Habakkuk, I believe it is, when he says, you know, take this, that a her- write it down, that a herald may run with it. And really that in- gives a little bit of an inkling of even what we live in today, that we're heralds running with this gospel news that's been handed down to us throughout the ages. Transitions, you know, Joshua and the judges and the prophets. All these successors of authority that were the spokesperson of God. Samuel becomes, I believe, the next author. I don't necessarily know exactly who wrote most of the, some of these. But most of it can be attested to. Chronicles of David. Uh, all the battles. I mean, if you read through the books of the kings and, and Samuel and those guys, there's so much in there about where... You, you see these stories and, and, you, and you, it says, you know, things like, and the Israelites did not seek God. They just went to fight this battle without his blessing and then they get wiped out. And then it says, well, because they did not trust in the Lord, because they did not seek God, because they worshipped the uh, false gods in the area. How many other things? Because they've forsaken, because they've forgotten, because they worshipped other gods, etc., etc. It's all kinds of those things. And you have to stop and think about this for a second. Were they writing that about themselves? Did the king come back from defeat and know the reason why? Not always. This is something key that we have to understand about when we're reading. There were lots of other writings, by the way. There were the chronicles of all the kings that were different from the stuff that we find in the Scripture. As for the, the exploits of such and such a king, are they not written in the, the annals of the kings of Judah and the kings of Israel? You know, the prophets end all their, their writings with those things. There were lots of other writings. Why were these different? These, these came from the prophets. They came from the ones who were giving God's interpretive view of what was going on throughout history. So when it says, because they had forsaken God, who's making that interpretive statement? The prophet is. It's coming from God. God is looking at the current events and saying, this is why this happened. This is why this is going on. It wasn't the perspective of the people. Remember, we talked about this last week. There were a number of different instances where, uh, you know, it's kind of hard to comprehend. It's like, why, why would the Jews take these writings that criticized them so harshly. I mean, it's like if someone wrote a book against myself, said like, JR's a jerk, and that's the title. Like, why would I adopt that as authoritative in my life? Why would I do that? And you have to stop and go, why did the Jews do that? Why did they accept these as authoritative? Because they recognized God was right and the prophet was right. They ignored the words of the prophet or they ignored the instruction of God and it took a couple generations for them to decide that was a prophet. We missed it. Think about Jeremiah. Think about Jeremiah. They threw him in the stocks. They threw him in this pit and he's in the mud. They didn't like him. We would hold him in the highest respect today if he showed up knowing who he was and what he represented in the history of Scripture. 
But in the moment, they did not recognize him. Why then later was his writings added as the very words of God? Because they proved themselves true. And the Jews recognized he was a prophet. Now, some people believed him from the get-go, but the kings and the prophets often doing this throughout those days, right? The prophetic writings are the, God's interpretation of the events of the time from the perspectives of God. Now, if you wanted the perspective of the king or the people, there are other writings for those kind of things. But this is why it was considered the word of God, because it came from the prophet. And God set this system in place from Moses. I will raise up a prophet from among his brothers, generation after generation after generation. So the Jews considered, and there are lots of other, there was lots of prophecy that we don't have. Things that God spoke that didn't make uh, the cut for the word of God, for the long term for all of us. How do we know that? There's lots of stories of that. First of all, how, there, were, there were other things where we see an event where we've never heard of this prophet, but then the king says, go get so-and-so the seer or the prophet. How did he know he was a prophet? Because he was. He'd been prophesying and had been accurate. He'd been delivering the word of God to the people. We don't have recordings of what those are. Not all of those things come in and become a part of the canon. Okay, think about Saul. King Saul, the first king of Israel, there's a story where he's sending messengers and then he goes himself and they're, they're so hit with the presence of God that they can't help but prophesy. But we don't know anything they prophesied. We just know they did. What am I trying to draw attention to you? Not all of the prophecy that took place was recorded as the all-time word of God. There was momentary words for certain things and certain times and certain places and relevant to those things, but weren't necessarily deemed to be the eternal guidelines of the covenant of the relationship with God. Prophecy today. I would compare. Similar. This is different. Don't go off the rails with me here, but I'm just going to throw it out there as an example. If someone feels like God gives them something today, I'm not going to add that to the Scripture, but it still might be true. But it's not going to become canon and something by which I define my relationship with God or give the same authority to as I do the Word of God. They're different. So some of those writings in time had been determined to be those um, documents of the covenant of the relationship between Israel and God. So those interpretative comments, they're very important in our understanding that this was God's perspective in this situation. And so when the prophets wrote, they weren't just writing opinion editorial articles. They were writing under the authority of God. And they had lots of other things they did that didn't make that cut. Only certain things were considered that authoritative. Amos, in the book of Amos, chapter 3, verse 7, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to the servants, the prophets. Really? Not sure I believe that. Well, that's what it says. He would reveal what he was doing to the prophets. We have God's interpretation, God's understanding, God's prerogatives, God's direction through the word. And I've I've heard that scripture many, many times, but when I was reading this yesterday or the day before, the second part jumped out at me. The lion has roared. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. 
who can but prophesy? <laughs> That's how powerful this is that God would speak. And that these guys would have this, this authoritative thing from God that comes upon them that can't help but prophesy. God didn't take over their minds and their bodies. Their, their personality is very much in there. God uses broken humans to do his work on the earth. And that's one of the things that causes many people to doubt because he used broken people, fallible people. Wouldn't the words be fallible? And, in, uh, and they, were, they were definitely scrutinized and judged, but accepted as the authoritative words of God. So they're not just history. The Bible is not just history. It's not just a book you read like any other book. If it were, we'd treat it with the same amount of, that we would any other book. There are lots of good books out there, very helpful commentaries and things and ideas and teachings, and these things are all good. But they, they are not to be taken with the same authority as the Word of God is. When God speaks something, it's timeless. It's infallible. You know, there are things right now that we believe and we operate in, not just in the faith realm, but in all kinds of realms. I mean, I always laugh. I think about when they used to bloodlet people, right? When they were sick, they'd cut them open and bleed out a bunch of blood so that some new blood could be made and they'd get better, right? I don't know. I think maybe if I lived in those days, that would seem logical. But now we know that's a bad idea, right? But God's words aren't like that. They're timeless. God doesn't change. His character doesn't change. His attitude doesn't change. His ways don't change. He's unchanging. He wouldn't be God if he did. He wouldn't be worthy of our worship and praise if he were flawed and frail and finicky. He wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be a God worth worshiping. But he is perfect. And so we see in the whole, we see reflections of God. Not just history, but it's with God's interpretation. It's God's interpretation. It's his insight. It's his direction to us, mostly through the lips of the prophets. There were other times where the sons of the prophets or a company of prophets is mentioned. They had to have had the reputation as prophets, but we don't know what they ever had to say. So what was going on throughout history? So this is going on throughout, you know, from the time of Moses until about 435 B.C. So about 400 years before Christ comes, the period of time started that the Jews called the silence of heaven. The succession of the prophets ended. And the Jews had killed a number of them themselves. And then in hindsight said, whoops, this person is authoritative. They brought the words of God and, you know, because they constantly went through the cycle of repenting and, and getting it right with God. And then a generation or two later, they crash again. And then they repent and over and over and over. And they're like, oh, wait, that was God speaking to us. And it ends in the time where, you know, Israel had been, ex you know, over and over and over this is going on. And finally, God's like, I'm sending you into exile. You're going to go into Babylon. Uh, they do, and then the process begins where they start coming back. And then you see in Ezra, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, which the Jews consider one book. And so some of our counting, when we look at some of this stuff later, you'll see that they combined a number of the books that we now separate out. And their order is a little bit different. But um, So Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther would be the historical sort of end of the time. As it's drawing to a close, these, the, these prophetic view of history, it starts to end right about then. 
You know, you've got Artaxerxes and Xerxes and, and those Assyrian kings in this time frame. And uh, along, along right with those historical Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, you also have uh, Haggai and Malachi and Zechariah, those prophetic books. Now, those books that some of you may know them as the minor prophets, they're the short prophetic books towards the end of the Old Testament. They were counted as one book, just called the prophets to the Jews. The, and so they were all just combined into one. So that will affect some of our thinking. Now, they kept history from then. They kept historical records from around 435 B.C. up until the coming of Christ. But they called it the silence of heaven. The succession of the prophets had ended. Okay, so it's 435. We just had Malachi. Okay, that's good. 425 rolls around. It's kind of quiet. 415 rolls around. Where are the prophets? Is there nobody that's speaking on the authority of God? And nobody was. This is how the Jews themselves understood this period of time. So then, when John the Baptist shows up on the scene right before Jesus, you have to, you got to kind of put yourselves in their context. They have been waiting. Their historical writings show, and we're going to look at some of those a little bit, show that they were waiting for a prophet. The silence of heaven had gone on. Think about what was, what was going on 400 years ago. Somebody do the math for me. What's 2020 minus 400? Go ahead. I can't think about it right now. I'm preaching. Huh? Yeah, what they said. Long time ago. Can you imagine that length of time hanging on to the same scriptures as authoritative? They maintain, they, it never changed for them. It wasn't even challenged. In fact, the Jews had people that when Jesus said not a jot nor tittle will fall from the lava before it's all fulfilled, they actually had people who guarded every syllable of every word in every translation that they did. People whose job it was to maintain the integrity of every single punctuation of the Old Testament. They were very strict about it because they were the words of God and they took it very seriously. So the silence of heaven is going on. So they kept this historical record and this is where we begin to get our understanding of what the Apocrypha is. These other writings that are part of church history that we will need to discuss more in depth. But we know, first of all, okay, we see that the Bible talks itself about the collection of the Old Testament canon. It attests to that whole process. It explains itself even as it goes, which is very, very helpful. But we also see in some of those writings in 1 Maccabees, chapter 4, 45. This is about 154 B.C. The Maccabees was a family that... Um, you know, the Jews had come back, but and the Greeks had shown up. So, you know, you have this shift from the Assyrian Empire to Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. And um, they had defiled the temple. So the temple had been rebuilt, and the Greeks sacrificed, I believe, a pig on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem. This is like the most abominable thing you could do for a Jew. And they did it to be intimidating and to maintain their control and things like that. Well, the Maccabees led a revolt and against the, you know, the Greek Empire. I think it started to fracture. Don't quote me on that at, at that point. But anyway, the, the Maccabean family became a leading family, and they led a revolt. And in, in the, the account of the history of the Maccabees, uh, 
they, have, they tear the altar apart because the, this pig's been sacrificed on there. It's totally unclean, defiled. And so once they get control again, they tear that altar down. And it says, they put the stones in a reasonable place or a place where they could be stored until a prophet could come and tell them what to do with them. Okay, there you have a, one of the historical references. The Jews did not have an authoritative prophet during the science of heaven, and they didn't, so they didn't have the word of God. It does say they availed themselves, one of the writings, to the bath coal, which, was like, was, which, which means daughter of a voice. They have stories of like, God still kind of, it was like an echo of heaven, really is what it would be called, where they heard from God in, in an inkling, kind of a quiet voice kind of way but never with this kind of authoritative thing of the prophet that they used to. I think God had some mercy on them. There's some great stories that I can't get into about all that stuff. It's, it is really cool. Maccabees, 1 Maccabees 9.27. So there was great distress in Israel, the worst since the time when prophets ceased to appear among them. What were the Maccabees attesting to? The line of the prophets had ended. That generation after generation of an authoritative voice from God instructing the people was over. It was not happening. And so for the Jews themselves, they did not regard those writings as authoritative as the scriptures that had been written by Moses and the succession of the prophets. They weren't included in the canon of the Jewish Old Testament, nor are they included in ours. 1441, until a prophet should arise. Got to understand something here just really quickly. The way we look, you know, this is sort of an analytical way of looking back on the history of the Jews, but they always had this, they had, they had a, you know, this, we call them the offices. There's three offices in the Old Testament. There's the prophet, the priest, and the king. They were the three governmental or authoritative roles that God had designated amongst the people. Now, God himself was the king at first, until the people cried out for a king, and then he, he's like, okay, fine, but this isn't going to be good for you. Here's Saul, and they give him Saul. Saul becomes the first king. David was the second king. Uh, Solomon becomes the third king, and on and on, et cetera, et cetera, the line of the kings. So there were these three offices in place. They did not have, they had political leaders or king-type figures. They had the priests, the Levitical priesthood continued throughout most of those ages. They didn't have the prophet. They didn't have that authoritative voice of God in their lives to lead them and guide them and regard it as the word of God. Ecclesiasticus, this is another book of the Apocrypha. So the Apocrypha itself attests, I think, to its own uh, position. Uh, we have to understand that um, Ecclesiasticus talks about the authority of the Old Testament scriptures. So you've got to remember, we didn't have this nice leather-bound book. We had like, if you can imagine, just five-gallon buckets up here full of scrolls, full of all kinds of different scrolls. What should be the scrolls that are authoritative? What are the other writings? Okay, and so they divided those Old Testament scrolls into three groups. They had the law which was the five books of Moses. They had the prophets, which are all the books written by the prophets, and then they had what they called the writings, or the writings of the fathers, or like Jesus, Jesus calls it the Psalms. Psalms was one of them. Psalms was the longest and first in their order of those books. So you have uh, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. 
Okay, so they had those three distinct categories. There's a lot of references to that. And then, why is that important? Because then when we look at these other historical writings, they refer back to those three categories as the authoritative word. The additional historical writings were not considered authoritative, even by the Jews themselves. One of our most significant resources is a historian and Jewish leader named Josephus. Right? You've heard of Josephus probably. Josephus was a Pharisee, and he was born in 39. So shortly after Jesus was executed, he was born, and he, and he grew as a leader amongst the Jews, and he wrote something called Against Appion. So he would have seen, he died in 180, so around 70 AD, Rome destroyed the temple. In fact, that's like pivotal, pivotal moment in Jewish history uh, when that temple was destroyed. And ever since then, they have been unable to fulfill that Old Testament law, that sacrificial system, because there is no temple. Now maybe you understand why there's so much controversy over the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, because the Jews want to reinstate their sacrificial system. But uh, Islam also lays claim to the idea that the stone that's there under the Temple Mount is where Muhammad was Uh, zapped into heaven. So there you go. There's a major root to why there's such controversy between the groups over Jerusalem. Anyway, Josephus writes this. We do not possess myriads of inconsistent books conflicting with each other. Our books, those which are justly accredited, are but two and twenty and contain the record of all time. 2 and 20, that's 22 books. There's more than that in there, isn't there, J.R.? Yes, there's 39 in, in, in according to the way we count the books. But First and Second Samuel were one book. The 12 minor prophets were one book. Ezra and Nehemiah, one book. So it had to do with the way that they counted the books. Of these five are the books of Moses, comprising the laws, the traditional history, from the birth of man down to the death of the lawgiver. The Jews believed that the book of Genesis was true. The birth of man was that story. They regarded it as authoritative. This period falls only a little short of 3,000 years from the death of Moses until Artaxerxes. Why does this matter? Why does Artaxerxes matter? Because he doesn't say which book particularly ends, but it's that time frame when those words ended. And it perfectly coincides with Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, and Haggai. Uh, Zechariah, Malachi, etc. So it gives us affirmation that even in the cultural context, these were what was regarded as authoritative. Until Artaxerxes, who succeeded Xerxes as king of Persia, the prophets subsequent to Moses wrote the history of events of their own times in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs. From Artaxerxes to our own time, the complete history has been written, but has not been deemed worthy of equal credit with the earlier records because of the failure of the exact succession of the prophets. Big, big, big deal. Very important. We have given practical proof of our reverence for our own scriptures. For although such long ages have now passed, no one has ventured either to add anything to them or take anything from them or alter anything in them. This was the Jewish understanding of the canon of the Old Testament. Those justly accredited books were there. Um, yeah, so so far we have the Bible itself attest to the canon of the Old Testament. 
You have uh, historians like Josephus attesting to it. You have the writings of the Apocrypha attest to the Old Testament canon. Lots of historical proofs. If we had that much proof for a lot of other historical things, it would be very, very significant. But there's more and, and significant ones. The Babylonian Talmud, the, which is a collection of rabbinical sayings, and we could talk a long time about that, but I'm not going to. There's a, a number of references in there. Um, after the latter prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, the Holy Spirit departed from Israel. They taught and they knew that that power had left them with Malachi. The Dead Sea Scrolls that were discovered in 1947, something like that, they were from a, the Qumran community who was a very strict and legalistic Jew, Jewish sect. And one of the things they talk, to, talk about is waiting for a Messiah, actually two Messiahs they were waiting for, and a prophet. They were waiting for a prophet. There was no prophet. There was no one that could write and have the kind of authority. Probably the most significant witness that we have is Jesus himself. This is where a lot of authority and power comes in. Jesus said to them, these are my words. This is Luke chapter 24, verse 44. These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. What did Jesus acknowledge? Those three categories that the Jews operated in up and before his time. He did not dispute that any of those were the word of God. In fact, he's saying, these are testifying to me, to my coming, to what I'm about to do for you. While Jesus often argued with the Pharisees about their oral traditions and their attitude, there is no record of him disputing which writings were authoritative and which were not. If the Jews had gotten off track with a bunch of other canon, surely Jesus would have been correcting them on that. But instead, he actually acknowledges them and uses them authoritatively to rebuke the Jews, the writings of the Old Testament that they both considered authoritative. Uh, Luke chapter 11, Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel, who was Abel, the second son of Adam and Eve who was murdered, first martyr, you could say. The blood of Abel is shed. He was a godly man. Two, the blood of Zechariah, the last prophet to be martyred, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. What's Jesus? He's, he's, bringing, he's drawing attention because it had been 400, 400 and some odd years since, uh, no, less than 400 years since Zechariah had been killed. Actually, I think it was more than 400 when he was killed. But Jesus is drawing attention to that time frame where the word of God was coming to the Israelites and then was cut off. He made no reference to any of those other additional writings that we would call the Apocrypha, which I'm going to have to talk about more next week to get into it. The rest of the New Testament, so Jesus' words and the rest of the Old Testament speak uh, to the Old Testament as authoritative 295 times about. They quote the Old Testament as the authority 295 times. In those writings, they quote the Apocrypha, none, not once. None of them are quoted in the Old Testament or regarded as authoritative. Guys, I'm going to have to wrap it up there. I love this stuff. It's fun. I hope I, hope I didn't bore you too much. 
But I think this kind of understanding as is, is you learn and you study, it, it boosts your faith. It should strengthen your faith that God has loved us. This is, what it, this is really what it boils down to. Did God direct history so that all the right books are in the Old Testament? Did God really have sovereign control in this situation in order to preserve his word and guard his word because his word reflects who he is? I think so.